from the Summit Bar and Restaurant Studio in the Panorama Lodge, Levy, Finland, 2023 Interski. I'm George Thomas, and we are here with, well, I'm going to call you a legend, Mike Porter. <laughs> Mike, it is so awesome to sit down here with you. And, uh, wow, it's, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about uh, the different nations that are here and, uh, you know, why. And you've got a really good take. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thanks, George, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here and see what's going on. So tell us, share with the membership, why, is, why are some of the more flatland countries here at Interski? Uh, basically, when in Europe, you have the Alpine nation, which is France, Austria, Switzerland, Italy. That's where the mountains are. And their economies are tourist dependent. So they get some of their people from their own country skiing, but they rely on the British, the Germans, the Dutch, the Belgium, Luxembourg, Norway, Sweden. Those are their customers, and they're trying to entice them to the Alps. And uh, originally, when you looked at inner ski, it was just the primary Alpine nations. And it, over the years, it's evolved to include Denmark and, and Belgium, and you go to the Eastern European countries. They're all part of this organization now, but they bring different elements into the mix. Uh, so one of my ideas was let people know, if, say we look at the Danish presentation, the Dutch presentations, a lot of it concerns learning theory, working with guests, to be user-friendly. It's trying to create a fun atmosphere. So really what they want to do is encourage the Danish people coming to the Alps to take a lesson with the Danish instructor, either in France or Austria, or to, to go to the resorts and areas that have Danish instructors because we know the language, but we can teach well, we can ski well. And so there's a little competition between the Austrians, the French, and the Dutch and Danish and all that of who gets the customer. Um, so, so when you look at them, you go, why are they presenting it? It's primarily for their audience in the country because Denmark doesn't have any mountains. Holland has a couple indoor arenas, but no mountains. Belgium has one indoor arena, no mountains. Luxembourg has no mountains. And pardon my ignorance, but uh, there's a lot of it there. So, Mike, you're kind of making me think of uh, the areas I'm familiar with in the Northwest, where there's a number of different ski schools at a given resort. And is that how it is in the Alps? Is there a Danish ski school or a German ski school, or are they more resort-oriented, you know, where they're really a part of the resort? Uh, probably the answer is probably both, because they're all part of the e European Union. They're allowed to work in the country. So the different European, different Austrian schools, and that will hire Danish instructors trying to get that type of demand coming in there. And I think in a couple places, they may have their own ski school. I mean, there's some laws coming in there. But it's more just to take courses with Danish instructors coming in. Okay, so that would be a, a Danish instructor working at the Verbier Ski School. Yeah, exactly. It could be. I mean, if you go to Verbier, there's probably four di different ski schools. There's got the main one, then they got the smaller ones. So they can cater more to the Danish audience. They're speaking the language in that one. So, I mean, it it's kind of changes back and forth. But the whole idea is that, that you are going to probably get a Danish instructor. Interesting. So how does that work? Again, you're here, and is a given resort maybe going to want to have those different philosophies under a given ski school? 
Uh, interesting in Europe, there's, by and large, the ski schools don't do any training. Once you have your national certification, that's the training you do there. So you do government courses. Training isn't done by a ski school. You know, if I want my Austrian pin, I go to the, the government in the region, Tyrol or for all. They put on the courses. I go to the courses. When the course is over, I go back to my ski school and teach. Then in the spring, I go back for another course. But like in the U.S. where we have internal ski school training, we got divisional trainings you can go to. Here, it's just sort of your, your training for your national pin, and, and that's it. So it's almost like getting a driver's license. Yeah, very, yeah, very similar. And then sometimes they have refreshers. Every three or four years, you need a refresher. But they don't have that same ongoing mentality that, that we do. And a lot of the Alps, the training is, I mean, learning to get basic turns so that you can move around the mountains, so you can go village to village, to really create that Alpine experience, which may be a little bit different in the U.S., where... We know the run. You don't need a guide to get around the run. You're learning to get ski better, get better, or, or in some areas where they learn to ski because their dream is to go ski powder in Canada or maybe go to the western part to go ski, have a ski vacation. Uh, but it's a, a little whole different educational mindset where we're really training skiers to get better. And a lot of you're in the Alps, it's to have that Alps experience and a different village experience. So different products. So how many inner skis is this for you, Mike? Mm, I don't know. I didn't count a lot of them, but most of them since 1975. Really? Most of them? Yeah, I was on the 75 team, and then, I mean, a cup, one we didn't go, two we didn't go to, one in Norway. We didn't go, and then the one in South Korea, there was that war threat, so we didn't go. And then I think Ushuaia I didn't go to, but otherwise every other one. How has Interski evolved since the late mid-70s? Well, I think in the original days, there was like eight skiing nations, and you're, and you're really trying to sell it abroad, what, what you could do to sell your instructors. I mean, a classic case there with the Austrians, their presentations, they had a huge influence in Japan. So the Japanese would bring their instructors over, train them, fight for them, try to get the best out of them. And the U.S. started making really good presentations. So during the 80s, a lot of we spent a lot of time in Japan training their instructors because they really liked what we were doing also. Um, the French were trying to go to Interski to really entice all the Brits to take lessons because the Brits loved to get out, go over to France. So they they were trying to put presentations together to sort of say, you really should come and ski with us. Um, and since then, it's really evolved. You've got uh, all of a sudden, you look at Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Montenegro, Slovenia coming in. With, like we said, Denmark, Norway, and that. And, uh, you know, Australia later on came into it. New Zealand came into it. Um, I mean, they're interesting there because they have a lot of customers. And we're seeing, seeing there a lot of their market now is Japan. Because Japan is like a 10-hour flight, but maybe a two-hour or three-hour time difference from Australia to ski in Japan, so much easier to go fly into Europe or the U.S. So, like a lot of the Australian instructors, what their training is to get is to have Australian customers go ski with them in Japan, and like the powder sequence all there. I'm going to go ski powder, but go ski with the New Zealand or Australian instructors. So the same thing we just talked about Europe. We're starting to see that that in those countries. Um, you got the 
Chile and Argentina coming in, but they're competing because they want North American customers to ski their Southern Hemisphere winter. So if they do good presentations, they're hoping North Americans are going to come down to Portillo or Valle Navarro or Los Leños, you know, because they need more than just their own tourists to keep the business going. Uh, I mean, if you look at the Argentine ski school, I think, I mean, their whole demo team, I think half of them work in Aspen. You know, and a bunch of Chileans work in Italy. I mean, it, so it, it's really a world of commerce. When we come to Interski, we keep thinking, oh, it's just educational, educational. It is, but there's an economic side to it. I'm trying to produce a product that other nations want or that's going to give, give our association instructors work. You know, so it's all interrelated, and you find where's your competitive edge? Where's that marketplace? So that was really the core of my presentation is when you look at a country, trying to find where are they coming from with this to start looking at it in that broader picture. And that may be some of the questions to ask the presenters. It's not just saying we had the answers, but ask the presenter, where are you going with this? Why? Versus sort of saying, well, we don't do that, or we've already done that, or that's new to us. You know, where we make some of these statements with no background. So it's a, it's a very complex and interesting story. Question for you. I was just thinking back when you were saying Interski 75. I, I, that's really when I became familiar with it. And I remember being covered in Ski or Skiing magazine in the late 70s and it must have been 79. Um, but I think it was Jens Husted. And it showed some uh, sequence photos of your synchronized ski. <laughs> Why has that uh, demonstration always been a part of Interski? Originally, you were trying to say what country has the best technique that's going to make the best learners. That's what that was all about. Yeah, and, and to put it into perspective, if you read ski magazines in the 50s and 60s, an article would be Stratton Mountain Ski Week versus Sun Valley Ski Week. And they'd put parts of their staff in a Stratton Mountain Ski Week that never skied and some in Sun Valley and compare their day-to-day, -day, what did they do, how did they learn, what came back about it. And so there was always a comparative. And it was Stratton Mount that time was Austrian. Sun Valley was sort of Austrian. If you went to Squaw Valley, which is not Palisades, that was French. If you went to... to Oh, half, half the places in New England, they didn't say what technique they taught. They said who the ski school director was, and you taught it. It was a modified Austrian. Cliff Taylor had short skis there. So literally, the ski schools competed against each other to see who, where you would learn the best. And, and the, the whole philosophy in those days was ski weeks. That was the big deal. And you did a ski week and where you went and how you progressed, and that would be the comparisons. So it would basically was even economic base there. I mean, I grew up in Lake Tahoe, so Palisades was French, Alpine, Med Alpine Meadows was modified Austrian, Heavenly Valley there was Austrian, if you went down to Mammoth Mountain they were Arlberg. So go figure that one. <laughs> And how did you train back in the day with the team? Uh, you know, with Zoom and everything going on now, it's possible to get together and really do so much more. Um, I mean, how did you all really gel as a team and come together? Did you, did you get together through the season much? Uh, interesting those times that no team existed. That literally in the past when a demo, when Interski was over, the team disbanded. 
And in 1975, the team members had to pay their way to Interski. PSA didn't fund us, they didn't have money. So when we came back from Interski, we all realized, most of us, not the whole team, but most of us realized we'd learned a ton, we were fascinated, and we wanted more education. So myself and a couple of team members went to the PSA board of directors and said, can we keep this team going, but it won't cost PSA any money, no charge. We just want to just recognize that we're going to keep it going. And they said yes. So we became self-funded as a team. So we'd do trainings and we'd phone up. And uh, I mean, it was interesting. We'd, we did some training in, in Colorado early season. So we used to go to Keystone Resort and teach their instructors, do clinics at night for the lift tickets so we could train during the day. We did similar things at Eldora. We traded, we traded clinics for lodging and lift tickets, so we were self-funded. Uh, we started the, the, the ski pool ourselves, and Lang was one of the uh, founding groups. So they'd help subsidize, pay for a couple dinners, this and that, and we'd do advertisements with them. So the team started going that way. And because we were self-funded, we'd stay at each other's house. And then we started doing clinics. And I think in those days, the, you had the Christmas holidays, and then there was kind of a break until February when you got the President's Weekend and all that. So we started doing clinics. So we'd end up doing the Pacific Northwest. There were times where four or five of us would go there for two weeks. And we'd go to all the little ski schools. And as you said, they had a lot of traveling schools. We'd do training programs, but we'd have five or six of us together. We'd talk train in that. East Coast, we did a lot. They did the Master's Academy and training. So we'd have four or five people out there for a week. So that's when we start, we did it mostly on the road during clinics. And then, believe it or not, we sent out newsletters among the team members. So it wasn't the quickest, you know. It wasn't the telegraph going that way. U.S. Postal. But they delivered a little faster than they do now. Uh, but we'd do letters like that. And then... Uh, Prior to the academy, would come together and do four or five days training. But in those days, the National Academy was put on by the team. We organized it. We put it on. We worked with uh, uh, the, the biggest one was Snowbird. And Sal Rayo, who was the ski school assistant director there at Junior Produce, he was the dean of the academy. So he helped organize and get the rooms. And then all the team members would figure out presentations, do it all. I mean, it was all sanctioned by a national association. But we really put it on because we had the expertise. And uh, so we'd, we'd do our own training programs there and talk. And then, but sort of that word of mouth on the road and because we're all self-sufficient there was more of a desire to get together and we once again we were trying to produce a product we could sell we totally believed in education and we found a way that if we were most current we were up to date and we had good presentation skills we could share this message and if we had a poor message or we didn't have good teaching theory we'd be out so and it just evolved from there obviously and what is it about this profession that has kept you so engaged for all these years? I know I've reflected on that a bunch, and, and uh, sometimes you wonder. I mean, obviously it's the reward when you see you can make changes in people. And, and by changes, I don't mean just skiing. I mean, so often you go with somebody and, and they accomplish a run or get down there, their self-esteem goes, and you, and you get phone calls or in the, in the old days, letters back from them. 
just sort of saying, you know, that breakthrough I had there has changed my whole life. I'm looking at my life different. I'm looking at something different in my job or at home. When you're realizing that these changes really evolve way beyond just skiing, this self-confidence, the ability to work through a problem and that, it was extremely rewarding, you know, and, and I saw that two levels, one of t training instructors and them seeing this becoming more effective and the successes. So it was, I tried, you did other stuff, but it was one of the rare places where you really see a reward. I mean, a lot of jobs you go and you do stuff and you just go, I hope it's doing well. I hope it makes a difference. I mean, here's right there. When you finish a lesson, I mean, in the process of a lesson, you see the grins coming out, breakthroughs, wow, I can do it, and that camaraderie and that sharing. Um, you know, so basically every day you're out with a group, if you're nailing, you're seeing, you're getting rewarded right then, right now. It's not... I don't know, or mystery, or whatever, or you can ask them. So, yeah, I think that's been the main thing. And I mean, it's always—it's a healthy lifestyle too. It's not like I'm selling something that you really don't need. I mean, sometimes when you went out there, I had this guilty way: you buy this product, that product. Do we really need all these products? Where no, this one helped them. Or working with the family, and all of a sudden see the family connect, and you know, parents can always raise with kids. Or in the teenage years, I mean, you got all these situations. And through the metaphor of skiing or snowboarding, I, I think we've seen a, a lot of connections. And the same thing with with people with different disabilities, that they can be incorporated in the family. You've got a family that all of a sudden it's not a separate vacation. It's one vacation, you incorporate it. I mean, and I think that's where this whole one team's concept has really been involving. Because um, like in 1992, we had Diane Golden, who was an amputee. She was led our skiing formations. You know, right on the main demonstration team, and we had snowboard, we had telemark. I mean, we had everybody, and the whole message was, you know, the whole family can be together. You can share a mountain experience. You can incorporate it. Can be one, and and we've taken it way further than, than that. But I think that's the most. It's rewarding, basically, every day. So to wrap up, how are you feeling about this inner ski? Here we are, last day. I can't believe it's already coming to an end. Uh, very good, because an element of inner ski that we didn't talk about really is one of the key things we come to inner ski with is to test our ideas. So this one, we've done numerous presentations in all different elements of learning theory, the people skills, decision making. You go through, the, I think we put on like 15 different presentations throughout the week, and we want to see what the response is. This is how we learn. This is sort of the final exam. We've taken our ideas, our theories, present them to the world for them to try to poke holes in it. And it's been over it's very successful, extremely positive reactions coming in there. So I, I think it's very rewarding that the thought process gone in, all the work that's gone into that, we're getting the validation that we're on the right track. And so many nations come up and said, yeah, we're thinking about those things. But they said, you guys are, are way beyond that. I mean, you've told, it's not, you're not present, presenting a concept. You're actually saying how this can be integrated into the day-to-day -day lessons and the application and how it integrates with the other elements where some, uh, Here's my idea. We're not sure how it integrates with the other parts, but we've tried to put it there. It's more of a package. So I'd say extremely rewarding because that's what we want, but at the same time, we're willing to take that risk to throw out, do all these presentations, throw it out there, take the feedback. And, and uh, so the indoor has been very successful. The same thing in the, in the ski world because if, if you look here, we have plenty of carving. 
different mechanical presentations going on and we're sort of saying we need good skill blends to handle our customers from arc turns to powder turns to bump turns but we need good solid fundamentals coming through there and the the, the ability to to move from from a bump lesson to a powder lesson to a carving lesson how do you just change that skill blend how do you rework the fundamentals to get it uh, and that's been very well received. I mean, there's some nations that are carving better. All they do is lay them on big edge. We go, well, that's about 1% of our membership. You know, and then, and then, I mean, how many hours a day can you ski doing laying a big edge ankle? I mean, it's fun to do, and I'm going to do some, but not for five hours straight. So it's looking at other nations to try to see how can we blend a lot of the different elements we see other nations do. So, like, in the course of a presentation, we can represent four or five different countries. And our system is that flexible, but we need it because how I ski in Vermont, New Hampshire, the East Coast, a little different than in Central. I could be doing the West Coast. I could be Pacific Northwest, I could be Utah, Colorado, Montana. I mean, we have different snow conditions, different hills, and our guests may ski in all those different regions. So it was a, it was a good check for understanding, and, and so far we're passing the test, and we're interested in still hearing the feedback coming in, but the initial response is very positive. Mike Porter, thanks so much for taking the time to come up here and chat with us. George, thank you very much, and uh, hi to all our membership. I think your team represented you extremely well. We should all be very proud. From the Summit Bar and Restaurant Studio at the Panorama Lodge in Levy, Finland, I'm George Thomas.